Well, if you will, go ahead and take out your copy of the Confession and your Bible. You can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. We're not going to read just yet. We're going to look at the Confession some and then we'll undergird what the Confession says with Scripture. We'll be in chapter 6 of the Confession. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we pray that you would uh, use this time to teach us, Lord, not so that we can simply become smarter, but Lord, that we would have our minds full and our souls full of your goodness in Christ Jesus. Lord, usually we must see the depths of our wickedness and depravity and the, the roots of our sin before we're uh, urged to look unto you. And so I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see that in man there is no good thing apart from your working in him. And I pray that we would see that from the very beginning, Lord, you have had a plan to redeem a people, a plan to exalt your Son, and Lord, from the very beginning, men have brought nothing into this plan but wickedness and sin. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, chapter 6 of the Confession, you'll remember, is the last chapter in the first major section. We're using James Renahan's four-part dissection of the Confession and the first section is called First Principles. It covers chapters 1 through 6. So we're finishing, or we're actually walking into the last chapter of this first section called First Principles. This chapter finalizes or sort of seals up what we would consider to be the foundational principles that are needed to be understood to move into the rest of the confession, but also that we need to understand to move into and understand the work of Redemption. Hopefully you notice if you just look at the, the table of contents of the confession that our confession is not a summary of every single possible doctrine or teaching that might be found in Scripture or in, in Christian dogma. The confession focuses, uh, zeroes in on the work of redemption, the, the, the primary work of God in Christ saving a people, what He saves us from and what He saves us to. And so these first six chapters have laid the groundwork for us to understand that work, that work of God. We looked at chapter 1, dealing with the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the only source of infallible, all-sufficient revelation concerning God, concerning man, concerning sin, concerning salvation. Can we learn from other sources? Sure, but they're not all-sufficient, and they are not infallible. The Scripture is the only certain, sure, sufficient, infallible uh, source of revelation. Chapter 2, then we learned of God. The Scriptures revealed to us God, primarily, first and foremost. The source of all things, in need of nothing that He has made. Chapter 3, we looked at the eternal decree, the work of God in eternity, 
which sets forth all of the events according to God's will. And you'll remember the question of the catechism. Uh, where do we see God's uh, the decree or God's... Uh, how do we see it executed? Well, God's decree is executed in His works of creation and providence. And so that's the next two chapters. Creation, God out of no need but in a manifestation of His own glory created all things. And then providence, God who is distinct from His creation works in His creation to bring about the details of His eternal decree for His most holy purposes. Now in our discussion of providence, we talked several times about what we might call the problem of sin. God is the source of all things. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. God decrees all things whatsoever comes to pass. In God's work of providence, nothing is outside of His work of providence. The question is, then, how can we not infer from that that God created sin? How can we not infer that God is the cause of sin or that God is the author of sin? That's the big question when you begin to deal with now, orthodox theology, and when you run into people like us who have a, what we might call a big God theology, the question that we immediately run into by opponents is, what about sin? Where did it come from? How does it come into creation? If you're saying God decreed all things that come to pass, where does it come from? And there are generally two what I would call methodological problems that lead men to th this this kind of thinking or that kind of uh, logical inference or I would say illogical inference. Make sure this is not you as we think about these problems. First, there are some who simply refuse to hold all biblical truth as truth. They might just outright reject a teaching. I don't believe that. He declared the end from the beginning. I don't believe that. Whatever you say it means, I just don't believe it. Some purposefully ignore certain teachings. They know it's there, but they're not going to pry any deeper than surface level assumptions because they're afraid that if they pry deeper, it may change the way they think. And there are some who just unintentionally avoid some teachings. And so what happens when you reject some kind of truth or purposefully ignore some kind of truth or unintentionally avoid some teaching in Scripture there's going to be a void left that you have to fill or you feel like you have to fill with human rationale. This just must be. That's one, one problem. The other problem is that we hold all of biblical truth as truth and then we begin to reason with our minds as to why these biblical truths must produce a certain outcome even if that outcome isn't stated in Scripture, or even if that outcome is outright denied in Scripture, we read to the period of God's Word and we stop and we say, well, if that's the case, then this must be. The text doesn't say that. We begin to reason that way with our human rationale. We say this must lead to that, even though it's not revealed in Scripture. Or maybe Scripture outright denies it, but some men still say, well, if this is so, this, it must lead to that. For example, Isaiah 46.10, we've seen many times these texts we've seen over and over. God decrees all things. He declares the end from the beginning. 
As Ephesians 1.11, God works in providence and brings about all things. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. So He decrees all things. He works all things. 1 John 1.10, sinful actions are a reality. If any man says he has no sin, he's a liar. God decrees all things. God works providentially in all things. Sinful actions are things. Therefore, this is human rationale, God must be the author of sinful actions. False. God is holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6. God cannot condone sin. Habakkuk 1. God does not tempt anyone to sin. James 1. That conclusion that men might draw cannot be true based on Scripture. Scripture denies or outright rejects that God is the author of sinful actions. Now men object and say, well that just can't be. And we begin to throw out previously held truths in order to adopt our new ones. We have to throw out, well, throw out the decree. We don't want to throw out the decree, well, throw out providence. Somehow we've got to make sense of the, the sin problem and in our minds we have to either reject truth or assume other truths. In answer to that we would say, well, the Bible says it. And it might not make sense to you right now, but our, uh, our, the, the authority of the Scriptures does not rest in its ability to uh, rationalize with men. It, its ability to convince you of its truth. That's not the authority. The authority is in the fact that God spoke it. Hopefully the study of God's providence and second causes has helped a little bit in reasoning or coming to understand how that works. Men are sinners. Men have sinful desires. Men sin when they're lured and enticed by their desires, not God. God decreed events and actions to happen. God uses the desires of men and the sins of men to bring Himself glory in a way so as to absolve Himself of all accusations of sin. Now all of that brings us to chapter 6 of the Confession, paragraph 1. I've called this paragraph the entrance of sin. This is what we confess and believe that the Bible teaches about the entrance of sin into the world. The confession says, and as we read through this paragraph, I want you to notice the verbs. Although God created man upright and perfect. So notice the, the verb here. Who's acting? God is acting. What did God do? God created. What did God create? God created man. How did God create man? He created him upright, morally good. And God created man perfect, lacking nothing. Now we can read from the Scriptures, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Hopefully these are texts that we know and we think, well, this is just common sense. Then God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. 
We see this repeated in Genesis 5.1. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. In Ecclesiastes 7.29, see this alone I found that God made man upright. Based on the Bible, what can we accuse God of? We can accuse God of making man upright and perfect. And we see in Genesis that it was all very good. And here we have a whole new theological problem. Nobody within any, within any orthodox theological school of thought gets a pass on this question. Everybody has to deal with it. What about Adam and Eve? It's easy to look at fallen sinful men and say, well, they sin because they're sinners. What about Adam and Eve? They were not fallen. They were not sinful. They had never seen a sin. They were not inclined toward evil. They did not have sinful desires and passions within them. And yet they sinned. Now how can that be? I want you to think about how you would answer that question. What is the answer to that question? How could they sin? We'll keep reading. And notice we have another Verb, and gave. So we're still talking about what God has done. God created man upright and perfect. God gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life, had he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof. Now here the confession gives us a scripture reference from Genesis 2, 15 to 17. I'm going to read verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. What can we accuse God of now? We can accuse God now of creating man upright, of creating man perfect, and of giving man a righteous law, threatening death upon the breach of it and promising life upon the obedience to it. Now, we've, we've worked through this passage before many times, but we, we, we can infer positively and negatively. God says, if you eat of it, you'll die. So Adam would have inferred, if I don't eat, I'll live. If I don't eat, I'll not die. Now, a little backstory to this. This is not in this particular chapter of the confession, but if you flip the page in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 23... We read, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Actually, verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, here's the, the phrase, Lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then we have the sentence just doesn't end. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden. There were two trees in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And here God says that if Adam were to, by chance, get from that tree of life and eat it, he would live forever. So he, he banishes him from the garden and puts the, the flaming sword there to keep him from the garden so that he doesn't eat from that tree. The tree of life would have produced in Adam eternal life that he didn't have already. The, the idea is that it would have sealed him in his fallen condition forever. 
Now they couldn't have already been eating from the tree of life because they would have already been sealed in their perfect state forever. They would have already possessed eternal life. So just like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life was given as a sign or a symbol that reminded Adam and Eve of what they could have, of what would be if they obeyed God. Obey God and eventually you can eat from this tree and you'll have life. And that life was more than the life they already had. That life would have been eternal life. Now let's fast forward to the New Testament quickly and, and reason backward from what we see Christ doing in the New Testament. Christ is, according to Romans 5.14, uh, it says Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. Christ is called the, the second Adam and the last Adam. And so we can infer a few things that are not explicitly stated in the Genesis narrative from what we learn later. First, that Adam was the federal head of humanity. Adam was acting as a representative for his posterity. And he represented all of his posterity before God in a covenant relationship. Adam's duty was to obey God for a probationary period. We don't know how long it would have been. We don't, there's no way to know. But this is the idea that after he obeyed, he would have been allowed to eat from the tree of life. He would have received eternal life and all of his posterity would have also received eternal life. A state of existence better than they already had. Now, to be clear, and this is where we need to especially be clear, what Christ has done as the second Adam is not plan B. It wasn't as though Adam failed and God said, okay, uh, um, what, what, what can we, how can we fix this? What, what Christ has done has always been the plan from eternity. So when we begin to talk about what Adam may have or could have achieved, we are speaking in hypotheticals. And secondly, what Christ has done as the second Adam far exceeds anything that Adam could have theoretically achieved. Let's say Adam had obeyed this probationary period and had, and had eaten of the tree of life and lived forever and we all had life. We would still not have union with the Son of God. It's, it's not as though Adam was just, um, just as good as Christ or what Christ has done is just the same as what Adam would have done. It's better. But God puts Adam in the garden. He gives him this law. It says he gave him a righteous law which had been unto life had he kept it. If Adam would have obeyed, he would have gotten to eat of the tree of life and it threatened death upon the breach thereof. We call all of that, we've talked about it before, the covenant of works. We read in Hosea 6-7, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. So we learn, even though the, the language of covenant is not explicitly used in that text, that the Bible sort of unfolds this as a covenant dealing between God and Adam. The stipulations of that covenant, do this and live. Disobey and die. Now all of that is happening in this language of God, creating man, giving him a law, promising him life, threatening death. So again, let's just go back to the garden. They were not fallen. They were not sinful. They had never seen anyone sin. They were not inclined toward evil. They did not have sinful desires and passions within them. And God gave them the greatest possible enticement to continue in their obedience 
and threatened the greatest possible curse upon their disobedience, and yet they sinned. How can that be? Everybody has to answer that question. Nobody gets a pass. How can this be? So we come in the confession to the language describing what we typically call the fall. It says, yet he, that would be Adam, yet he, or, or mankind, man, Adam and Eve, did not long abide in this honor. So far we can accuse God of creating man upright, creating man perfect, giving him a righteous law, promising him life and threatening him death. Now, notice some more verbs. Yet he did not long abide in this honor, Satan using. So now who's acting? Now it's, the, now it's Satan, it's the devil. Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve. So now I want to read to you from Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent, remember who we're talking about here. They were not fallen, they were not sinful, they had never seen a sin, they were not inclined towards sin, they did not have sinful desires or passions. God promised the greatest possible blessing and the threatened the worst possible curse. That's, that's who we're dealing with. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, the woman who was not fallen, who was not inclined to sin, who had never seen a sin, did not have a sinful nature. He says to this woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice the verbs. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, food for who? Food for her. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Whose eyes? Her eyes. And that the tree was to be desired. Desired by who? Desired by her. Desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Sin, in this scene, did not originate in God. Here we might go so far as to say it did not even originate in man. If we, if we want to trace it back to the serpent, Satan using the serpent, and he entices Eve, and she entices her husband, 1 Timothy 2.14, says that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Notice how the confession phrases this. Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation. So far, we can accuse God of creating man upright and creating him perfect. We can accuse God of giving him a righteous law, threatening death upon the breach of it and promising life upon the keeping of it. Now we can accuse the serpent of seducing the woman. We can accuse the woman of seducing her husband. 
Who was under compulsion? Nobody. Who willfully transgressed the law of their creator? Adam and Eve. God remains completely free of guilt. Now some would object. But God had to decree it. Sure. So then God's at fault. God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does He tempt anyone. He Himself tempts no one. We cannot allow our philosophical wanderings to override what the Bible says. Nowhere in Scripture does it ever say God created sin, God urged to sin, God forced anyone to sin. Read the text. It's that simple. Let me quote to you here from John Murray. He says, Satan tempted man to sin. This temptation was the occasion of man's fall. It was not, however, the cause. No external power or influence can cause a rational being to sin. The sin of Adam was a movement of defection and apostasy and transgression in Adam's heart and mind and will. And for that movement, he was responsible and he alone was the agent and subject. The temptation of Satan did not constitute the sin of Adam. It was the voluntary acquiescence in that suggestion, the embrace or sympathetic entertainment of it. For that acquiescence, man was solely and wholly responsible. Satan was responsible for the malicious and seductive intent of the temptation and for its character as seduction. Satan incurred guilt thereby, but for the fall of Adam, Adam alone was responsible. Satan incurred guilt in connection with the sin, but it was not Satan who ate of the tree. Again, read the text. Our minds begin to reason. Well, then it must be this. Well, then it must be this. What does the scriptures or what do the scriptures say? Adam, without any compulsion, with Eve, did willfully transgress. Eve saw it. She delighted in it. She desired it and she ate it. She gave to her husband and he ate. They willfully transgressed the law of their creation. I would take that to be the, the required obedience from creature to creator, probably the moral law written on their hearts, and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit. That is the, what we call the... Um, what do we call that? What's that uh, word? The command? There's the moral law, the natural, and the positive law. The positive law. In other words, a law given just because. There was nothing innately uh, immoral with this tree, of eating of the tree. This was a law given to Adam just because to test Adam's obedience. His unreserved allegiance to God no matter what. So that's what we call the fall. They broke the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit. Notice the confession. Which. Which was just described. The fall. All of that. All of that. That whole scene. Which God was pleased. God was happy. According to His wise and holy counsel. Remember from previous paragraphs, the wise and holy counsel that's synonymous with the divine will, the divine decree. We might call that the hidden will of God. God was pleased. 
according to his wise and holy counsel to permit. He permitted it in accordance with his will. He permitted it to happen. Now remember paragraph 4 of chapter 5. This is not by a bare permission. It's not passive. It wasn't happening God, and God was saying, well, okay. It wasn't a bare permission. It was in accordance with his will. His hidden will, not his decreed or revealed will. Notice what it says, having purposed. There's another verb. Who's the purposer? God. Having purposed to order it to His own glory. God purposed to order it. Past tense. When did God purpose to order the fall? In eternity when He purposed all things. Now how can God purpose something and decree it to be so and not be the author of sin? Well, we've already seen... You've got the nature of second causes. You've got the, the actions of the serpent. You've got the actions of Eve. You've got the actions of Adam. God orders all of these events to bring about His own glory. Now, Very often I think we forget the definitions of sin that God has given to us in His Word. We can't just look at something happening and say, well, that's, that's a sin. Sin is not defined by men when we look at an action or, or an event and just simply determine it to be sin. God's told us what sin is. 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. James 4, 17, to whom uh, the man who knows to do right and does it not, to him it is sin. Romans 14, 23, anything not done from faith is sin. 1 Corinthians 8, 12, whoever causes a brother to stumble in his actions, that's sin. Has God done any of this? Has God broken His law? Did he know what the right thing to do was and, and just didn't do it? Did he, did he act outside of faith? Did he cause someone to stumble? No, God has not sinned. Is God the author of sin? Absolutely not. They were not fallen. They were not sinful. They had never seen a sin. They were not inclined toward evil. They did not have sinful desires and passions within them. God gave them the greatest possible enticement to continue in obedience, threaten the greatest possible curse for disobedience, and yet they sinned. How? Everybody has to answer that question. Here's the answer. You ready? They used their free will, and they fell into sin. They used their free will. Let me read Murray again. He says, God gave to man the power of contrary choice. Man of his own will, by no external compulsion or determination, used that power in the commission of sin. There was no necessity arising from his physical condition, nor from his moral nature, nor from the nature of his environment, why he should sin. It was a free movement within man's spirit. And then he quotes a man named Laidlaw. He said, to use Laidlaw's words, it arose with an external suggestion upon an external occasion, but it was an inward crisis. Adam chose to sin. Two humans created in the image of God, perfectly upright with no sinful inclinations, no experience of sin, no sinful passions, the greatest possible enticement to obedience, the worst possible threatenings upon disobedience, placed in the paradise of God, used their free will once. And all of that according to the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God who purposed it for His own glory. 
That's, that's how it happened. And we're going to get to the chapter in our confession on free will. It's amazing how many people will tell us what we believe about free will when we're very open and honest about what we believe about free will. So that's that paragraph. Now, I don't want to close and leave you in Adam. The particulars of the fall are important, but they are subservient to salvation in Christ. I don't think it's a stretch or outside of orthodoxy at all. I think it's perfectly within orthodoxy and, and confessed throughout the ages. To say that God decreed the fall of man to take place in order to display His grace in the salvation of sinners and His justice in the damnation of the wicked. Now let's read some of the New Testament explanations or, or clarifications on this. Romans 5.12 Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15.21 By a man came death. 1 Corinthians 15.22 In Adam all die. This is the doctrine of original sin. Adam sinned as our federal head and all of Adam's posterity f fell with him in his actual sinning and are also consequently the recipients of a fallen nature by natural generation. When he sinned, we all went with him and we all inherit his nature. Ephesians 2.3 says that we are by nature children of wrath. As the representative of his posterity, he used his free will and brought death to all who would come from his loins. But, Romans 5.16 says that the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. That's in Christ. To finish out 1 Corinthians 15, 21, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. To finish out verse 22, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam brought sin, condemnation, and death to all he represented, Christ brought righteousness, justification, and life to all that he represented. By natural birth, we are in Adam. By new birth, we are in Christ. So just like this morning, I'll repeat it, there are only two races of mankind. There are Adam's race and there is Christ's race. Let's pray. Father, we pray again that you would, would press these things upon our hearts. Lord, may we run outside of ourselves. Lord, help us to flee all self-reliance and all self-will. Help us to renounce all self-righteousness and flee to Christ. Find ourselves in Him, united to Him, holding and clinging to Him. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You would take it upon Yourself to represent sinners. In Jesus' name we pray.